But yeah, I beat Ruby, and rather than feeling like this satisfaction for finally doing something that I'd been seeing as some sort of incredible video game accomplishment for like seven or eight years, instead I felt an immense sense of hollowness and just had to sit back and be like, my life is finite. What have I done? Oh God, what have I done? <laughs> this is the Big Bang Theory Theory. Hi, I'm Nick. And I'm Kyle. <laughs> And you're listening to a show where we watch a show about nerds who are on a show, and the nerds aren't really nerds, and but we are, we think. But we're not necessarily the kind of nerds you'd expect to see on here. And so we judge the other nerds and tell them how they're not like real nerds while we explain what makes us nerdy without being too nerdy about it, you know? Hey, Kyle, how are you? I'm good. I'm very good. How good. are you? I'm okay. I'm fine. I'm going to just be real upfront uh, about today's episode that we watched season four episode 10 the alien parasite hypothesis uh this is a real limp noodle of an episode i thought i don't know how you feel about no it. no i'm i'm 100 percent with you i mean it does we can talk about this a little more but amy is quickly becoming my favorite character just because she's oh. easily the most relatable of all of them to me so far okay but uh but i do not no, this episode was was pretty bad. Okay. In fact, it contains my single. It this episode may contain my single least favorite moment in the Big Bang Theory ever. Kyle, I'm excited that you brought this up because check this out. That is something that I absolutely want to get into in in as much detail as possible once we have done the short episode summary. Every single episode, I say this is going to be the shortest summary ever. And then I always take longer than I mean to. But hey, check this out. You've been getting better lately. Thank you. I feel like I've been getting better. And today's going to be incredible because watch. Okay. A plot and a B plot. A plot. Amy gets horny and doesn't know what to do about it. B plot. Raj and Wallowitz have a contest to determine who would actually be the sidekick if they were a superhero pairing. Kyle, what is your nerdy thing of the week? No, not my nerdy thing of the week. I know, I know. No, but that's it. That's the whole episode. There's oh, some see. shit that happens in the meantime, but there is no other plot to it. There's no need to get any further. So this there you go. True. I win. This is, this um, is undeniable. And so now that you have the base plot down, yeah, Kyle, what is this absolutely awful thing that you got to? Please do provide some context, because obviously I that was incredibly truncated. But that is the episode. So this this whole thing starts because Amy is at a restaurant with uh, Bernadette and Penny. Oh my god, Jesus! Yes, this is gonna be rough. Amy is at a restaurant with Bernadette and Penny, and one of Penny's ex boyfriends, who I do think we've seen on the show before. I just don't remember when. So I didn't um, remember him at all. He seemed familiar to me, but when... well, uh, I mean, it's a running joke. All of her boyfriends look kind of the same, right? So yeah, it's and possible I, that it's when I looked up the episode title. His name did come up confirmed in a previous episode. So, yes. I think his character name is Zach. So, anyway. Yes, but, yeah. I, I think I specifically remember there was an episode where, remember, Penny gets mad at Leonard because she likes Zach. But Zach is so dumb and she's already been – she's had a fling with Leonard at this point. So, she gets self-conscious about dating someone this incredibly dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think that was it, but it's been a while and it's not that important. What is important is he's a good looking man and Amy feels something she has apparently never felt before for him, which makes her make this noise. Uh, thank you. I didn't want to do it. But which leads uh, to an Abbott and Costello routine. This, and that was it. That was oh. that was so bad. That was if you wanted to it's not like the it's not a bad joke that's like emblematic of how jokes in the show normally fail. Like there have been much more like swing for the nerdy reference and miss jokes in the Big Bang Theory than this one. But this was just so lazy and well, ex- so bad, and it goes on for so long. Well, explain the base routine, because obviously you and I are in the so, same page, so the but base I don't routine know if everyone is, knows she's what trying, She's trying is. to... She's, so, yeah, it's, it's... The Abbott and Costello is a reference to a famous, marginally funny, the first time ever that you see it comedy sketch back before there was TV for these sketches to be televised. Well, yeah, I'm not going to go into the whole Abbott and Costello routine, but it's analogous to this. Amy is trying to explain to Sheldon what okay, happened well, I'm to going, I'm going to explain it a little bit more because I think you are too much taking for granted how much people would know about this. It, no, I'm saying it doesn't oh, – It does are, matter saying, because it's an exact copy through. of the joke. I'm not going to explain – Well, so why can't, you, just, why can't I just why can't I explain the joke in the episode? Are, are you, because we need to compare. Audience, are you familiar with who's on first? There, that's what this is. And if you're not, you can look it up. But it is a copy of the who's on first routine. There. Kyle, oh, Jesus. Go. Was that the magic word you were looking for? Was who's so on first? So people know what fucking famous routine we're talking about. What other Abbott and Costello famous routine? Because if I they're... think people are going to know about who's on first and not necessarily know who Abbott and Costello are. Or similarly, know who Abbott and Costello are and need to know that we're not talking about any other well, mysterious if, if, thing. If, if that was the magic password that I needed to Kyle, keep talking Kyle, without getting as, interrupted, as I was never going to get there. To explain All the you had to say of Transformers was, comic hey, books when I why don't you the just, why don't, you can who's on first? Nuts. You know, it's kind of like who's on first. Kyle, why don't you explain what and actually happens in the did. episode? And apparently yeah. I wasn't allowed to. <laughs> Yeah, after interrupting me like 17 times. Anyway. I mean, literally once, but go ahead. <laughs> so Amy is trying to explain to Sheldon the what happened to her in the restaurant the previous night. And she's like, yeah, I saw Zach and I said, who? And Sheldon goes, who what? And she's like, no, no I said who? And, and Sheldon's like, yes, referring to? And she's like, Zach. And she's like, and she's like, and what did you say when you saw Zach? And she's like, I said, who? And they do that. Who, Zach? Zach, who? What did you say? Who, who? Zach, Zach, who? Like, it feels like forever. It feels like it goes, it probably only goes on like 30 seconds. But I swear to God, if there is an actual hell and I end up there, which is, if it exists, it's likely that I'm going. That will be what is waiting for me as my own personalized torture chamber. It's just that sketch, but somehow it never ends. So yeah, I literally think you could get someone to kill themselves just by strapping them to a chair and showing them some sort of digital simulacrum, some sort of deep fake of this bit of the Big Bang Theory where they just keep repeating it over and over and over again, and it's never allowed to end. That's fair. This is... uh... I didn't think it was quite as hellish of an experience. I will 100% agree that it does feel uh, interminably long, 
that it, in reality it probably is maybe 30 seconds and it feels like it just goes on and on for minutes and minutes and minutes and it's awful because there are only i was going to say there are only two reasons you could find it funny and maybe that's not true but what 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 it seems to me is either you do recognize that it's parroting the who's on first routine and just that recognition is enough to make you laugh like you're like oh i know what this is i get it <laughs> Except it's not even nearly as complicated or interesting as that. Oh, are you still there? Uh, the the hell joke. <laughs> yeah, it's either you would laugh at it because you recognize that it's it's parroting the who's on first routine, but it manages to be inc- like somehow even more one note. Like the the original Abbott and Costello routine is just a joke about misunderstanding someone's name as the form of a question. But they do variations on it, at least. And it leads to increased confusion to humorous effect. This literally is just Amy and Sheldon going back and forth for what feels, you know, like a good solid three hours of who? 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 Did you? But who are you talking? And it's it sucks shit. I was saying it's like they thought the original version of their joke was too complicated for the audience. So they had to dumb it down. Yeah, it's it's like it's like no 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 the original it, it has too many moving parts we can't let the chimpanzees lose focus. Well, and so that leads to like my my second suspicion of how anyone could find this funny is that you've literally never heard or the joke itself or any reference to it, and so this is the first time in your life where you're like, huh, ambiguity can be funny, but that's it. So like, and it again, it's like. A problem with that we've brought up with the show over and over again is like, I think this is an extreme version of it where it will always explain the joke so you know what reference or what joke structure or whatever it is that you should be laughing at. It makes it very easy for you. And this is like baby's first joke. Like this is really the absolute lowest common denominator, the simplest, laziest thing possible. And I think it speaks to a general issue that I had with this episode, which is I found that there were several situations here that were good premises that could theoretically be funny, and they're just such huge misses. They're just like squandered opportunities, and it really bums me out. Because like to get back into like the main plot, I thought the beginning of this episode had promise. It's like... We're, we're talking about Amy tr- having to confront sexy instincts. You know, she likes to consider herself, very similar to Sheldon, a, a being of pure intellect, and where Sheldon has shown absolutely zero interest whatsoever in any sort of sexual relationship. This is the, the second time now where Amy, you know, originally it came up once where she wanted to pretend that she was humping Sheldon to, like, satisfy her her parents. And now she actually is dealing with it. And so you're like, oh, this is another way that Amy is showing herself to be more human and potentially more interesting than Sheldon. And they just absolutely drop the ball. And Yeah, because that's it was almost relatable. Who among us has not been like, I'm just trying to get through my day and now there's someone incredibly sexy here and it is just really it is just really ruining my ability to pretend that I can function like a normal person while there is someone attractive in the same room as me. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, let's let's play script doctors for a second. Cause here is what I would do 
if I had my own crack at this episode, which would be start with the same premise, but Amy's instincts and urges overwhelm her in such a way that it shows literally any effect on how her character interacts with other people or behaves at any point in the remainder of the episode. Other than her, a handful of times throughout the episode, saying, who? Like, having her have to, like, really, like, hunker down and be like, oh shit, I'm not a rational being. I recognize that I can't control this. How do I adapt or change my lifestyle? Or what does it mean? Or who am I? I think those would all be interesting questions for her to get into. Or even better is, um, well, not even better, but like another option would be at the end of the episode. And this is another missed opportunity where, where Sheldon is talking about this situation with Penny. And Penny's like, aren't you just jealous maybe? And that doesn't lead anywhere. <laughs> but then Penny is also like, you know, if she's horny. Because Sheldon does recognize it. Sheldon isn't bewildered. He, he says at one point straight up, oh, no, Amy's horny. And Penny's like, you could help her with that, you know. And to, uh, you know, another theoretically comical misunderstanding, instead of, like, taking the cue and being like, oh, yeah, I guess I should go fuck Amy, he instead recruits Zach, the interest of uh, Amy's lust, to try to have sex with her. And then Amy does follow through on this plan, until she meets up with Zach and he looks, he's not, he not even like confirms, but he just looks too stupid for her to follow through on the engagement. But I think like, it'd be so much better if like, what if they just gave it a go? What if they went on a date and it didn't work out? What if they did actually fuck and they had, and then Amy had to like deal with whether or not that was something that she could live with. Like, Hey, I can't believe this happened. This guy is an ape. But he is fulfilling a very important, if base, need that I need to have fulfilled. How can I incorporate this into my life? Yeah, it's basically, it, you could do it like a vampire story. It's like, you're just going to have to live with this hunger that you feel inside you. Yeah. It's like, I... <laughs> and instead, they just acknowledge that the hunger exists. And apparently, based on Sheldon encouraging Amy to follow the strict mental discipline of i guess it was the vulcans from star trek i can't remember the specific name of yes the... no it was the vulcans but the, the name of the practice oh i didn't i i don't remember that either yeah um, but by the end of the episode she's like oh i guess it is how i will live my life and i will continue to have absolute control over my urges uh, i it, haven't changed no one else has it's also weird because there's specifically an episode in star trek about how once like Every 20 years or whatever, the Vulcans become so horny that they have to, like, get laid or be destroyed. Mm -hmm. And that seems like the much more obvious Star Trek reference. I, it, I even feel like they brought it up in a previous episode. It's called Pon Far. Yeah, so, which I know mostly because they did a joke about it in Futurama. But... Yes, that is that is the... But the shows would definitely never avoid making a joke just because Futurama made the joke better. So I just wondered, like... Did they just feel like they had used that one previously or what? I don't remember, but yeah, uh, but yeah, I like the idea. I mean, there are a lot of ways she could have stalked this dude or just become obsessed with him. You're right. I hadn't really thought about it, but even her reason, like I look at you and I suddenly realize you're just too dumb is sort of a dumb explanation because the whole point like of 
what she's going through is that it has nothing to do with what she's thinking and it's entirely a physical response. So, like, what about, like, the fact that he doesn't understand anything that she's saying would be a barrier to, like, her self-respect at that point? I don't get it. Well, and there's even a bit of a preview on how it could have gone where – so the the very beginning of the episode is – uh, the nerds are hanging out, having a totally obnoxious conversation where Sh- Sheldon is like, hey, I know that we're not going to talk about anything because I, you know, uh, ost- not ostracized, but I, I chastised you for eating with your mouths full earlier or whatever it was. And then he goes on to describe why 73 is his favorite number. And I found that frustrating, not because it was an obnoxious thing that he was discussing, but because I thought his reasons for loving the number 73, which are too complicated for me to explain right now. But they were great. Exactly. No, they it were was awesome. like a genuinely He made like a really good thing. point. Yeah. 73 turns out it's a great fucking number. And I was like, this would be so much more fun in a better show. This is like a really cute and interesting thing about Sheldon. And I love the way he's explaining it. Yeah. And it, it sucks so much that we are introduced to this fun thing as an example of why Sheldon continues to be insufferable when this is one of the nicer things the show has presented about him. Yeah, it doesn't even make sense because it basically from every... If it's something that's of interest to us, it doesn't make sense that his friends don't find it interesting. I know. it's This whole fucking episode is so backwards. but So that's that's how the, the, the cold open begins. And, it, and that scene ends with like, oh, no wonder the ladies don't want to hang out with us. Bleh. Cut to the ladies who are all having dinner together. And Amy starts making her noises because she is so uh, immediately horny for this Zach guy. And Bernadette goes on to explain... Uh, oh, no, because Penny talks about how she used to date him, and he was too dumb for Penny, which we, we already went over a little bit. And Bernadette, you know, she says something like, "And uh, Amy's your favorite character. I think Bernadette is mine. And Bernadette is like, you know... Just as long as it's none of the original characters on the show, I think it's fine. Yeah, at some point, I guess, the, the producers or writers were like, we, we, our show is pretty bad. We, we, we better introduce more interesting people to make it a little more less livable. But Bernadette is like, you know, I'm smarter than Wallowitz. Like, in a way, he's too dumb for me. But, like, what's to prevent you from just fooling around and then, like, listening to NPR to, like, satisfy your intellectual needs or whatever? And Penny makes this dumb joke like, oh, Zach couldn't even spell NPR. But I, I feel like that absolutely should have been followed through on as a potential solution. Instead, Bernadette does not appear for a split second for the rest of the episode. But it would have been so much better if she could come in and be like, hey, you remember what I said about Wallowitz? Why not give that a try? Why not just make out with Zach, see if he satisfies your needs, and then see whether you can live with that? And then You know what? Go ahead. I, I, you know what I think is going on here? I, I'm not sure, but my only explanation is that this show knows that its audience really isn't ready for that kind of sexually liberated behavior from a character they're not secretly trying to slut shame. So. That's, I hadn't thought about that, but that's possible. But it's also because, frustrating. Because, because if it were Sheldon in the same circumstance, as a man, I mean, the way Sheldon's been written into a corner at this point, you can't see this happening. But if it had happened, if Sheldon had, like, fallen in love with someone who was incredibly hot and dumb and had, like, a one-night stand with them and be like, huh, I guess I'll assimilate that experience into all of the rest of my relationships with people, everybody would be fine with it. It would be an interesting thing about yeah, that character. Yeah, every, everyone would celebrate it because they'd be like, oh, look, Sheldon, take but I guarantee step you, people, normalcy. 
people would feel like Amy had betrayed Sheldon somehow, even though the show goes a very long way to actually being like, no, he's actually cool with it, which is another would, would have been a great dynamic. It's like, no, Sheldon's like, hey, I'm not. It's like I am many things for this woman, but I am not. I am not the the dick in this relationship. So well, but the end, the episode still kind of ends that way because after Amy, against the entire premise of the episode, just decides that she's not going to have these feelings for Zach anymore. Sheldon is walking her home, and Amy is, just starts holding Sheldon's hand in a moment that should be sweet, like, oh hey, you know maybe Zach isn't right for Amy and Amy does want to explore something more meaningful with Sheldon who maybe she doesn't have this lust for but is generally more compatible with sweet potentially interesting story thing to go with and I think they're trying to initially it appears set up a larger overarching thing and instead Sheldon's like what are you doing as Sheldon would not out of character and Amy's like, oh, nothing. Sorry. I, it was just an experiment, but I, I don't feel anything. And it's like, well, why did you – what's that for? What's the point of yeah. even having the scene if you're just confirming that it's just every single part of this episode negates its own premise? And I hate it. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, it's not just boring. It is actually functional. Like, it does a bad job of itself. So – Negates its own premise. It's a good point. Yeah. We even get that in the B plot, which is basically. Did we talk about the like? It's Hard, really hardly at all. So just the B plot is basically uh, after like there's an incident in one of the science labs where someone gets bitten by a radioactive rat. Literally, that's what happens. Yes. And so they got they start talking about how well. If that had happened to one of us. Maybe we could have become a superhero. If it was, then I'd be Raj is like I'd be a superhero, and you'd be my sidekick. And Wallowitz, I can't tell if this is. I guess this this sounds like something that could really happen between two nerds. Wallowitz is like, how dare you suggest I would be the sidekick? I would be the hero, and you would be the sidekick. And the entire rest of the episode, yes, is just a pissing contest and a series of trials to prove. Who is who? Which mm-hmm. could, again, not great, like pretty one note. But of all of the ways that they could have gone about it, the way they finally decide to settle it is a wrestling match, which, again, has some comic potential. But instead of actually watching these two ner- incredibly nerdy people like slap fight, the entire joke is, oh, no, they're not going to wrestle. They're just going to circle around each other and sort of like yell not not very good insults at each other yeah. in the most boring way possible and until the episode ends. Yeah, and there's literally no end to the scene. The, the episode ends with them continuing to circle and then black out to credits. And it is so uninteresting that Leonard, who is there presumably to referee, the last scene of the show is him asleep in the background. Yeah, that's a bold move, isn't it? It's like, look, we know we know this isn't actually – we can't realistically pretend that this is not an incredibly shitty and boring subplot. So have fun with that. Yeah. I mean that's this thing that should be funny, could be funny. Leonard is there to provide commentary saying – this is not worth my time. I can't believe we're doing this. And then the, the stakes increase in the opposite direction you'd want, where he does show that he is less and less interested as it goes on. The only positive thing I will say about this is this show, I think, generally does not have much physical comedy. But So when Wallowitz and Raj are in their unitard circling each other, I thought Wallowitz, just like the way he moves, actually pretty funny. Like, I want to see more of him doing 
just really straight up physical comedy. He it looks yeah. it looked to me that he was really trying to take advantage of the opportunity, and it's a bummer that they didn't follow through on it. Um, yeah, he does a pretty good forward role. Also, and the the actual funniest bit of that whole subplot is in the middle when he's like, "If you're so brave, stick your hand in this uh, in this box that has a spider in it." And Raj is like, "Okay." And he's like, wow, that was easy. And he's like, yeah, that's because the spider left the box and is crawling up your arm now. Which is actually not how arachnophobia works. It's, um, like, I guarantee you if Raj were really as scared of spiders as Wallowitz is telling us that he is, despite the fact that we've never heard that Raj is scared of spiders before, then the fact that the spider wasn't in the box and was instead crawling up Wallowitz's arm would not be enough to instantly negate Raj's fear. But whatever. It's funny because when the spider is crawling on Wallowitz, Wallowitz gives a very classic, like, scream, get it off me performance that I thought was pretty good. Yeah. So I want more opportunities for that. Also, sorry, one of the best joke of that subplot is there, too, because it's like, why should I have to touch a spider? Well, what if you're a superhero and the world's in danger and the only solution is, you know, involves a spider? And Raj goes, well, what if the world is ending and the only solution involves uh, undressing yourself in a men's locker room while other men are present? <laughs> and Wallowitz gets so upset. Yeah, like, well, that would never happen. Uh, which, that is a thing where, again, I, I wouldn't expect it to happen in the same episode. It would be nice if in a future episode this were a callback where we did have to see Wallowitz confront that insecurity. <laughs> All right, uh. so I, I feel like we're we're hitting... A crossroads here where do you ever wonder which of us would be like because i watched this and i was like this is not a question that ever goes through my mind do you ever wonder which of us would be the superhero and which of us would be the sidekick I've does not, it matter I've not for a moment wondered that but hey did you wonder at the end of the episode that, not between us no i i wasn't i the, the episode was uninteresting enough that i did not for a moment put myself in anyone's shoes <laughs> but okay let's hash it out right now and and I hope this ends with us still on speaking terms. I don't because I don't have any strong feeling. Basically, what I realized is I was like, I wanted to bring this up with Nick, but with um, basically, I re- yes, uh, this was me th- talking to myself earlier. It's like I want to oh. bring this up, but I just can't imagine. <laughs> I was going to say I can't imagine you ever being a superhero because you just do not have the kind of like here I come to save the day personality. So that makes it hard for me to imagine being your sidekick, even though in many other social situations I can imagine playing second fiddle to you, like this podcast. Um, Aw, this, this, we are 50-50, baby. Uh, we are, let, I'm, let me put it this way. One of these days we're going to have a – someone is going to institute a poll about who your favorite of the two hosts of the Big Bang Theory theory is, and I am not going to win that poll. Um, I don't think either of us will. It's probably going to be Chloe somehow. Yeah, that's a good point. But, no, I think if I were anywhere in the superhero realm myself, I do not think I would be a lead character. So, you know, I, I, I would be a sidekick if I were paired up with anyone. But just as in my real life, I feel like my need to help people would be out of a sense of begrudging duty. And so I would, you're right, I don't think I would be the guy bursting onto the scene to heroically save the day. As much as I would be the guy who is like, oh, great, another burning building. What a fun coincidence that I happen to be impervious to fire. Here is another night of hanging out inside playing video games ruined by my obligation to save these lives. 
Anyone else could save them, but if I don't, I'm going to look like the asshole. Because again, I'm the fire guy. Whoop-dee-doo. <laughs> yes, and so I guess exactly what I'm saying is, in that context, I cannot imagine being like the sidekick to that person. But similarly, I can't imagine being a superhero myself. I mean, I can imagine being... A, I'm, I'm totally lying. I can imagine being a superhero, but I can't imagine you being my sidekick for the same like for the same reasons you just described. It's like there's no universe where it's like I have to stop the Joker and you're like, okay, well, you can't do it unless I'm there by your side. You'd be like, good luck with that. I have to beat Xenosaga for the fourth time. I'm only working up to time number two. We'll see if I get to four. Maybe I, I- feel like... We're more like, a, in terms of obscure comic book pairings, I feel like we're much more some sort of, like, ensemble twosome. Like, you know, Archer and Armstrong, or Quantum and Woody, or maybe Hawk and Dove. You know, some sort of very balanced pair. Yeah, I, I'm gonna, I don't recognize any of those, and I'm not going to even pretend otherwise. But cool, 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 cool. <laughs> maybe I'm Batman, you're Superman, and then we're like in the Brave and the Bold. Or I'm Green Lantern and you're the Flash. Uh, like an all-star comic, so... Sure. Well, you know what, Kyle? I think it's time we leave this episode behind. Maybe I'm Wonder Woman and you're Steve Trevor, you know? It's like, we have sort of chemistry, but we each do our own thing. Maybe... I'm Now I'm just fucking with you. Okay, yes, please transition us out of this bit. Okay, so... I give you permission. Oh, Power Man and Iron Fist! That's a good... That's another that's another good point of reference. Right. Last I, one. I got it out of my system. I at least know who Iron Fist is, though not Power Man. So hooray Luke for that. Cage. Luke Cage. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. His original name was Power Man because he was black and soul power, black power was like a thing. It was a very exploitative. I don't know if you know this, but the whole original reason that Luke Cage and Iron Fist are friends is because originally it was like, well, we have these two failing characters that came out of our attempt to like mine 70s like they were like a 70s funky kind of thing, right? Yeah, it's like very much like Quentin Tarantino's like childhood kind of superhero comics where it's just like, yeah, one of them knows kung fu and one of them is black with an attitude. Yeah. What do we And doing? super strength. Okay. You know, nerdy thing of the week. Hopefully we can cheer ourselves up after going through this this sewage episode. I do have my thing ready to go, but would you hit, prefer to hit go me. first? Okay, Mine's, I, I, I'm going to try to get through mine as quickly as possible, but it's going to take a bit, so you should go first. All right, great. That's excellent foreshadowing. <laughs> I do worry that I've uh, recommended this before, but I don't give a shit. Uh, and also, first of all, I, I, I don't remember I, I, I said this explicitly at the beginning of the episode. Uh, a month or so ago, I said Xenoblade Chronicles. I give it a half-hearted recommendation. I'm upgrading that to a three-quarters-hearted recommendation. It is not an incredible game, but it is a very cute, enjoyable, satisfying game. And I'm looking forward to playing more in that series. So the only thing I'll say is it's too big and it's too long. I think it is a game best enjoyed rather than savoring it. Kind of just going from story event to story event. Because that makes it feel a little bit more action-packed. But anyway, that's that's not this week's recommendation. This week, As long as it's not Final Fantasy X or Stardew Valley, both of which you have recommended multiple times. Yeah, so no, they I, get well, it. I'm, I'm not recommending a video game. It's I, uh, I, our, our friend Solvay, previous guest Solvay. I've been showing her an early YouTube comedy series that is lives deep within my heart. Uh, and that series is Cautionary Tales of Swords. And ah, yes. It's hard to explain why it's so great, but I have the deepest, truest love for this 
dumb, dumb show. And so what it is, is back when YouTube was first becoming popular, I don't know if this was like an actual like streaming internet channel or if it was going to exist only on YouTube, but there was this this like comedy collective who put together a channel called Channel 101, and they had a handful of shows. The only one I'm familiar with is Cautionary Tales of Swords, and it had a bunch of kind of up-and-coming comedians just doing what they wanted. And I think it's a really great example of a dumb, dumb, dumb idea that works so well because everyone is so committed to the bit. And the whole premise is it is like a brief sort of public access show of this old man in a long blonde wig uh, with an eye patch uh, that that uh, re- reveals a dark backstory, explaining the dangers of swords. And he's crude and foul-mouthed. He'll tell you how a sword will cut a fucking baby in half or it'll cut you wide open. And he presents these short clips of sword-related tragedies. And he gives uh, out helpful tips like letting you know that sword tricks are the number two cause of all sword-related accidents. And the format changes over the course of the series. The, the, the premise itself changes but it just leans into its incredibly silly anti-sword premise and oh it's wonderful i don't even know i i feel like i try to give uh, more in-depth reasons for why i like things but this is one of those things that's like so pure <laughs> that i have to be like just watch it like i i, I doubt it's for everybody you know there are going to be some people who watch it and they're like this might be too dumb and not enjoy it but Oh god, just look it up. Just look up Cautionary Tales of Swords on YouTube. There the only thing I'll say is I think there are seven or maybe eight episodes. And each of them is less than ten minutes long. And I would say you don't need to watch past episode four, if I'm being honest. The first four episodes are fantastic. Number five, the Halloween episode, unfortunately is a low point. It just doesn't work. It's not like anything terrible happens. It's just an this is not the, the funniest episode. It's a bummer. And then I think that was the end of it for a couple years. And they, they came back and did a two-part epilogue. And there might be another episode in there, which is why I'm not sure if it's seven or eight. But absolutely, 100% recommend watch the first four episodes. And then watch the rest if you like, because you got nothing to lose. You're not. It's not going to... It's not like watching a whole season of television where it's you're you're wasting so much of your precious precious life. Just like fucking do it. It's great. It's wonderful. Have it. I I went as Trip Fisk for Halloween, my first year in L.A. Who's the this this main anti sword character, and no one knew who I was, and I didn't care because I was so happy and proud of my sweet ass costume. Cautionary Tales of Swords. Check it out, Kyle. Your turn. Okay, my turn. So, this isn't basically I I fucked up and I couldn't decide which of two things I wanted to recommend, and so now I'm going to try to draw a line from one to the other, despite the fact that they only are tangentially thematically connected. Sorry. So I have been obsessed the last week and a half with this new tabletop role playing game I discovered, um, which is very recent. It's very recent. It's called 
uh, Lancer, and it was kickstarted in 2019, although I think they'd been beta testing it and, like, circulating it among hardcore, like, nerd role-playing groups for a while because mm-hmm. when it when the first draft of it came off the presses it was very polished and very well written but anyway very successful kickstarter lancer is a tabletop rpg you know sort of like dungeons and dragons only instead of playing a knight or a wizard you play a mech pilot in the far-flung future of humanity and it's really hard for me to talk about like what makes it good just because I realize that our audience probably just is not ready to hear my in-depth analysis of like, you know, game mechanic design. So I'm going to, I'm going to ignore that. And instead I'll just say like the reason I was first interested in it is because I have one as the people who are regular listeners know, I'm a geek for giant robots and Gundam and stuff. And I've wanted a long time for there to be one of these that I thought actually worked the way I wanted to work. And I had a very specific idea of that because when I was like, 16 or 17, this game came out on the PS2 called MS Saga New Dawn. MS stands for Mobile Suit. It was like a, it's the only Gundam RPG for some reason, despite the fact that you'd think that would be a very popular combination. But basically, it's a Gundam RPG. You play through the game, it has a pretty standard, you know, post futuristic sci fi plot. And you play a character in a giant robot who has. Final Fantasy style turn-based battles but what's cool is in addition to your character leveling up as you go on you just pick up nifty new robot parts and robot designs so in addition to your you learning new like piloting skills like your your character just keeps keeps getting new like equipment and parts and weapons that he can graft onto his robot as long as there's enough room left in enough nodes left on his thing and so your your robot just becomes increasingly frankensteinian until such time as you just come you you finally acquire an entirely new design that's just superior all around it which pay you upgrade your entire mech to a new cool looking sleek mech and uh you start all over it was a pretty good game i i never i played it multiple times which i'm, I'm not gonna totally sidetrack you but have you are you familiar at all with the the front mission series of games I'm familiar with them as like a series of games that are, those are the ones where oh no I'm thinking of Armored Core. Armored Core is the one Similar. with the crazy controllers, right? Oh no, I think you're thinking of like Metal something that came out on the Xbox, but that might even be an Armored Core game. But Front Mission 3 is similar. It's it's a JRPG where you happen to pilot mechs, and I'd say it's worth checking out if you've got the time. But sorry, go ahead. No, that's a good. I will look into that. Except it looks like it's a tactical it RPG. It is, yeah, and the, the, and they're not mechs in that. They're they're smaller than your traditional mechs, and they're Wanzers for walking Panzers. Uh, oh, that's not good. Uh, I mean, the game may be good, but that's that's just objectively bad. Anyway, <laughs> so so that's all I wanted was a tabletop RPG that would give me the ability to like recapture that dynamic of okay, I'm a mech pilot, but. My mech is cobbled together from all of my favorite bits of every every single robot I've ever learned how to fly. And for some reason, I mean, there are plenty of tabletop mechs, but every one of them that has tried to capture this, including Battletech, has had incredibly complicated, obtuse rules. It's not their fault. They all come from, like, you know, a time in tabletop role-playing design where they just did not give a shit about accessibility to people. They were just like, no... It's like you will you will spend 50 hours learning how to play this game or you will go 
die, you fucking nerd. Whereas now it's like, oh, people who do not have like hard math collegiate degrees might also like to play role-playing games. So long story short, this gives you that feeling and it still has a pretty crunchy tactical side to it. But it's also just like, you know, a fun shooty, whatever. So that's all incredible. And I would have played it just for that. But the thing that really took my breath away was the setting, which they obviously put an incredible amount of work into. So again, not going to go too far down describing the whole setting, but it's set 10,000 years in the future. And I think basically what I love about it is most, most of these, most settings in which people are fighting in mechs are are kind of pessimistic. Basically, it's always like, well, there's a war that's been going on forever and millions of people have died or there's mm. a struggle for scarce resources. You know, you and your hardcore series of hardcore band of mercenaries are the last hope, you know, for your side in this incredibly burnt out landscape. And this is just like, no, it's it's space. Humanity is finally doing all right. We finally figured some shit out. We built giant robots because we think they're cool, and it turns out they work in the setting. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, why go into it too much? But basically, it's like, yeah, you know, you work. You're you're part of the good guys, and you've got to like, you know, there's still trouble and conflict. So occasionally, you have to fight other giant robots and things. But ultimately, you know, show some heroism, and maybe everything's gonna work out. And I like it a lot. That sounds it's, really nice. It's yeah, it's an incredibly well-written campaign setting that that acknowledges like like basically the short version is that like humanity built like an a fascist intergalactic empire like you might expect and then just was like no, we don't want to do this. It's like it's like we don't want to be the bad guys in space, so we're not going to do it anymore. So now when you encounter new civilizations and whatever, it's just like you basically – it's like humanity started out the empire and then decided that just as an act of will that they wanted to be the Federation instead. So transitioning, speaking of the Federation, I'm wrapping this up. I saw for the first time this week an episode of Star Trek. I've been watching all of Deep Space Nine, and this episode – jeez, do I remember the name of it? The episode is called Far Beyond the Stars, and it is in season six of Deep Space Nine. And it was, it is, in my opinion, the single best episode of Star Trek I've ever seen. So good that it's worth talking very briefly about. All right. Hit me. In this episode, it takes place, a lot of Deep Space Nine has to do with this war uh, against this evil empire called the Dominion. And in this episode, you know, the Federation is kind of losing the war to the Dominion and it's demoralizing. And the leader of this space station, Benjamin Sisko, is like, you know, I don't know if I can keep watching my friends die and keep fighting this fight anymore. It's just demoralizing and hard. And so for reasons that are not entirely explained within the episode, because they have to do with the larger lore, but he made contact with some tribe traveling aliens at one point and he finds his consciousness like whisked away. And all of a sudden he's living in the 1950s as a black science fiction writer who works for like a small, like pulp science fiction publication, maybe not a small, like maybe one of the bigger ones. But the point is he's writing science fiction and nobody wants to he's allowed to do it but he's not allowed to tell anyone he's black because everybody's racist like there's also a woman on staff and there's it's just like he's just trying to like he feels like he's called to be a writer but it's hard and all of a sudden he basically he has the idea for a science fiction story that is basically the story of deep space nine but when he takes it to his publisher they're like well we can't publish this unless the guy who runs the space station is a white guy and he's like, you're kidding me. So the whole episode, 
Uh, it has two things that are neat about it. One, which is sort of just auxiliary, but all of the characters who appear on Deep Space Nine are characters in this time travel fantasy that he's having. So they, including all of the aliens, so you get to see all of like the alien characters without their makeup playing entirely different characters and the way in which they all like relate to each other and the things that they represent sort of in Cisco's mind is interesting. But more than that, it's just like an incredible love letter, at, but also a really like realistic acknowledgement of like where science fiction comes from. So it shows you sort of like the age of science fiction publishing when it really was just like, we're just trying to sell as many copies as possible. We're basing all of our pitches off of like the artwork that gets drawn first. Um, and then we write the stories around like whatever pictures are going to be on the cover of the story of the magazine. You know, and also it's incredibly racist and sexist because that's like what society is. But slowly you have these individuals who are trying to push past that. So like the entire episode sort of ends with the writer who Benjamin Sisko thinks he is being like, no, I have to publish this story and I have to publish it my way. It's important because, you know, even if it's just a dream, I have to offer a vision of the future that's basically not a white supremacist vision of the future because mm. I have to give people hope. And then he flashes back to being Benjamin Sisko in the future. And in, in the closest I think Star Trek has ever gotten to breaking the fourth wall, Benjamin Sisko is like, no, I'm not going to quit fighting the Dominion because what I do here is too important. It's like, in some sense, I'm not just fighting this war against this alien race. I'm fighting for, it's, it's like I'm part of a dream and I have to keep the dream alive because, you know, who knows if we're really real or if we're just something that some poor unfortunate soul in the less fortunate time and place is just imagining to give themselves hope. And, but either way, it's important to keep fighting the fight, which is like the perfect love letter to what Star Trek really is at its best, right? It's aspirational science fiction like Lancer, which is why it was sort of tying the two heavy-handedly together. But it's like Star Trek was, from the very first of it, it was like designed as a universe where like, you know, the future is multicultural and largely uh, communitarian and people solve their problems through like the best application of like teamwork and rationality that they can cobble together. And eventually that evolved into this, uh, to this huge thing that millions of people find lovely and find meaning in. And so just like to acknowledge all of that in the context of this episode, the way they did it was in incredibly beautiful and poignant. And so, you know, if you like Star Trek at all and somehow like me, you have never seen this episode, it is worth watching. Well, that does seem worth checking out both of those things, particularly this 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 fun, love and mech game. And to go back to that for a second, while you were explaining that, I couldn't help my curiosity and I wanted to look up, I think the game you were thinking of with the giant ridiculous controller, I said it was metal something. Apparently it was Steel Battalion. Yes. Unrelated I... to the Armor Core series. But according to Wikipedia, the controller consists of 44 input points, mainly buttons, but also uses two joysticks, throttle handle, radio channel dial, five, five switches, eject button, and three foot pedals. <laughs> anyway, uh, before we finish your recommendation, could you just... Uh, repeat both the names of both of the things you're recommending and how to find them if you know the rpg is called lancer and you can find it you know either by typing lancer rpg into google or by going to massive press uh, well i can't just google it you'll find it and it's cool if you want to read if you want to find out what it's like the you don't get all 
taste for the RPG because they put out a free version of the book. So the free version of the book has almost all of the rules and character creation and stuff in it. So you will get some sense of what's going on in it. Also, it has just the guy who did all the artwork for it and helped design it is like a professional comic book illustrator. And the art is some of the best stuff you will ever see in like a tabletop game book, which already sets a pretty high bar. Like the mechs look incredible and they also look kind of weird and alien in a way that is just like sparks the imagination. So you can Google that. And the episode of Deep Space Nine is on Netflix. And I keep for some reason... I keep wanting to call it Beyond the Stars, but I don't think that... Oh, no. That is Far Beyond the Stars. Cool. All right. Well, let's wrap up there. I feel like we were... I feel like you are particularly vulnerable with the things you enjoy about your sci-fi stuff. And I brought up a dumb sword show on YouTube. But, no, uh, it was fine. I, I know how much you love that show. It's fantastic. So. Uh, and, and showing it to Solvay and getting to re-experience it and, and see someone else experience it for the first time genuinely warms my heart so uh, i'm not going to tell you just to not watch the big bang theory though i should but today's episode jesus christ don't watch it and go enjoy these other things instead you'll have a much more fulfilling life i believe if you do yeah agreed all right well let's stop there unless you have anything else you want to add <laughs> Uh, what was the name of that sketch by Abbott and Costello again? Because I really think it's important that people know so that they don't, you know, feel culturally disenfranchised because I forgot to mention the name or maybe they forgot it themselves. All right. I'll make sure to include this part in the episode so the audience gets to have this quality comeback at the end. This is, this is, I, I feel burnt. I feel stung. Uh, passive aggressiveness knows no bounds. I yeah. You already know that about me. 